Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take SideQuests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. What's up, bitches? Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Slava. I'm just reading what you had written down. That's supposed to inspire you to say something, not necessarily read it verbatim, but what's up, bitches, I guess works for <laughs> our new our new intro. I'll I'll adjust the music accordingly. Okay. Can you can you make the eight mile soundtrack? Naturally. I think that beat was too quick, but anyway. You get the idea. Happy twenty twenty four. Yeah, indeed. I realize that this episode's gonna air quite a bit after twenty twenty four has begun, but today for us, twenty twenty four has begun yep it's the first day of the new year or the first year of the new day can you believe it yeah we are almost at our anniversary mm-hmm. we recorded oh, yeah. our first episode january 10th of last year uh-huh wow happy anniversary happy anniversary to us are we we talked about this before i don't think we ever settled on anything for an anniversary celebration one year celebration thing. We haven't sold anything. Yeah. This is episode 64. Four. Four. And we haven't even figured out the, our 100th episode. Which well, we the 100th, not... we've got time for the 100th. I mean, that's that's weeks away, right? If we run a little run a little math here because that's what we do. That's 36 weeks away. We typically record once a week. Sometimes we do double. I know both of us have a few highlights this year, like I'll be getting married at some point, so we'll burn some episodes here and there, so we'll need to do double, but roughly 36 weeks away before we need to have something for the 100th. However, the one-year celebration is technically two episodes away. Yeah, we should figure something out. Speaking of which, my wife won't stop asking me, so I'll finally ask you, you guys settled on the date? I have not, but Matt and Deborah, who have both been guests on the podcast, just got engaged the other day, which uh, which actually pushed this episode out a little bit because I needed to help with the rendezvous. And he told me the other night they are going to get married before us, probably. And I was like, cool move, bro. I got engaged before you. So He's just a, <laughs> he's just a man a, of he's action. A, he's just a topper. He's a story topper. Um, so he's looking at like first week of March and we're looking at like last week of March tentatively. We actually need to have a conversation about that this week to sort out like the details with the courthouse and whatever. And then in the summer we'll run like an open house type party at like a local park or something, rent a gazebo. Cause I don't really want to spend a ton of money on a wedding because, um, in case you're unfamiliar audience, weddings only last for the day and spending a lot of money on them is fun if you can afford it but um yeah financially not the best decision to start a new life with a person uh going into debt no and it's 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 stupid it's ridiculous it's fun if you can afford it yeah so is cocaine i guess but 
you know, so you can make a you, you want to tell us a little more about uh, <laughs> we'll side quest on that later. Weddings are great. I had one. Uh, we we had an outdoor wedding. I had a live band. We had food catered, but mm-hmm. we did it in the smart way where all of that cost less than a thousand dollars. Oh, shoot. I mean, it's nice to know people who are in a band and who like you, and they'll come and play for two hours if you feed them. Mm-hmm. But so I get it. Not everybody can have access to those kind of things. But if you're out there and you think dropping 30 grand on your baby girls or your princey poos wedding is cool, or if you're one of the princey poos that think, this is somehow a normal thing that you guys should have a $40,000 wedding, $20,000 wedding. Woof. Good for you, I guess. You know, who am I to judge? But that's idiotic. Woof. Buy a house. 40000 yes. Well, maybe not in this economy, but $40,000 is halfway towards a down payment. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, I had some friends get married last year, and I was like, oh, hey, you should elope. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. I was like, well, you definitely shouldn't spend all this money on a wedding and they're like no we really want to do and they didn't even do anything crazy and i i i pulled the um the husband aside who's a friend of mine i was like hey i'm gonna say this right now and this is not for an i told you so but it's a the moment you're done getting married the moment this wedding's finished she's gonna ask about a house so you should really push for something different and they're like no we really want to do this blah 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 and then a week afterward, he's like, so she's, we're discussing when we're going to get a house. And I was like, hmm, interesting. But they spent the money on the wedding. And it's just like, okay. Hey, not my life, not my circus, yeah. not my monkey. That's fine. Yep. Um, but as someone who thinks about finances in a future-focused way, and finances take time to build. Anyway, get off our little soapbox here. You didn't come here for financial advice, but you probably should stay for it. Anyway. <laughs> That's um, right. So uh, I got a question this week, Slav, I've been thinking about. No, you don't. You know why? Because I have a question. Well, that's rude. I thought about it more and more. It's a rude way to start 2024 off, but okay. <laughs> Listen, I sat for two hours pretending to be you, and I shat out a question <laughs> for us. Took you two hours to pretend to be me, and you only got one question out? It's like we've never had a conversation before. Well, you did accuse me and Spencer of never talking to humans, so apparently you're the only human we know. Am I human? But the question that I came up with, are you real? You might not be real. And that question comes up in part four of this book. Mm. And the side character. Oof. That's a, that's a story and a half. Well, I look forward um, to getting there. Yeah. So I've been trying harder to come up with these questions because as much as I hate them, I think they do serve a purpose for the cadence of our st- show. Mm-hmm. And when I come up with, now that you don't do this, but when I come up with them, I'm like, <laughs> I really, really want to somehow integrate it into the actual thing that we're talking about. So sure. first question was what scared you kind of a general yep. horror book question. Yep. This week's question, what images are conjured up in your mind's eye when you think of the last day of school. Do you think of ankle bracelets on crushes? Do you think of bullies pushing you down school stairs? The anticipation <laughs> of the long summer ahead? Because when you were a kid, the summer seemed like another year within a year. 
Oh, that was uh, nice. No, oh, that goodness. was real nice. So, yeah, that's a good question. All right, I'll uh, I'll give you that. I like how your intro though is, "Hey, knobweed, you uh, <laughs> you don't make questions very well, so I decided to do it for you. Happy New Year." Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks, Lava. Appreciate it. <laughs> what are friends for? You know, I'm starting to question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know. Uh, financial <laughs> advice, I guess, based on moments ago. Yeah. Um, What's conjured up in my mind's eye when I think about the last day of school? I would say that I remember the anticipation of sitting there and you're like, you literally have to be here. But you're like, what are we even doing? We're not doing lessons. We're not. We're literally just sitting here together and just waiting for the bell to hit or the time to hit and and get released. You run out the door and there's just this elation of freedom that I don't think I just I think it fades because you start to become an adult and you're like, oh, there's responsibilities. There is no freedom anymore. Because it's all this financial burden and things you have to do and you have to go to work and da 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 da. There's no moments anymore of, hey, this is your break. And even if you go on a vacation, you're not going on a three-month vacation the way you did as a kid. Which is, like you said, just like another year because time moves differently when you're a kid. It's just that elation of freedom that I remember when, you know, based on your question here of what is conjured up when I think about the last day of school. And like running home and uh, and just being like throwing your bag, not emptying it because you don't do that until the week before school. So like, because what do you have in there? What do you you don't? There's nothing you need in there. You know, maybe a favorite pencil or something. But let's be honest, you're gonna play video games or you're gonna get on your bike. You're not doing anything, depending on if your parents make you read or whatever. But that's what I think of. What about you? Very similar, and I think you captured it well. You said anticipation of freedom. For me, it was just an anticipation of something. Yeah, freedom came along with it, but you're sitting there. It's the last day of school. You might be getting to go home early. Even if you're not, you're waiting for the bell to tick off. There's the, and I, I grew up on the, in New England. Well, at least when I was this old, I was in New England. So Maine, the weather that's described there, it's a little cooler than where I grew up, which was Rhode Island, Massachusetts, but there's it's still New England. And so there's this anticipation. It's finally warm. There's a cool breeze outside, probably. And what I'm thinking about is the comic book store. I'm going to go to the comic book store. I'm going to pick up a book. I'm going to go home. I'm going to read it. Or me and my boys, you know, which, you know, I was more of a Ben. So my boys was one guy. So me and this one guy would just let roam the hallways and just, you know, eat away the last few hours of uh, school. And watch everybody else go home, go to the computer club, play some video games, and then later, later, get home for dinner or whatever. So, but those are two different instances that I remember distinctly. One time, like just sitting there excited or like swollen with anticipation mm. to go to the, the comic book store and spend like a few hours there. Or the other time where like, hey, my buddy and I hung out, played some video games, and then, you know, went to his house for dinner. And then I went home. And summer vacation started. Yeah. That's what's conjured up in my mind. Yeah. That's that. I think that covers it pretty well because nostalgia, everyone has nostalgia if they decide to tap into it, right? Like 
they can remember things that they did as a kid or with their grandparents or whatever. And how we describe it to one another, if it evokes the nostalgia in the other, I think that you've achieved the goal. Hey, let's think back. Not that people have a distinguished conscious goal, but when you're like, oh man, you remember when? Like you're asking someone to uh, step back in time with you to to recapture the nostalgia, recapture the moment. Yeah. It's an invitation to the other to get philosophical. And that takes me back to our first episode on this book where we discussed a, a portion of the introduction where Georgie is you know, longing to be with his brother as he's running down the street because Bill was able to make you see when he told you a story. And I think that's where you can trigger that nostalgia. Because for me, as you started talking about sitting there in class and not knowing why you're there because you're not doing any lessons, it took me right back to sixth and seventh grade where I'm just sitting there going, for the love of God, please, can we just go? In my mind's eye, I saw it as you yeah. were describing it. Yeah, it's fun. But what do you say we uh, we roll over into part two of It by Stephen King? Let's do it. But before we dive in, you guys know what it is. Make sure you Salty Adventurers hit that subscribe button so you never miss a side quest. On this episode of Side Quest, we're diving into the second part of It. Part 2, June of 1958, chapters 4 through 9, and the second interlude. And as with the first episode, one of the anchors for our conversation is King's particular style of writing. Last episode, if you remember, the anchor was the introductions. In fact, that kind of overwhelmed the conversation in a good way. So the introductions are continued in this second part, but Jonathan and I want to anchor our conversation on King's style. So reading this section, Jonathan, how did you feel? You really like the first one. Are you still loving the book? Yeah, I am. I think this is the best book that you've recommended so far. Good. Uh, it's taken the seat. It's it's displaced Roadside Picnic for me. I, if anyone listened to episode 50 that we did, which is a special episode, we did kind of a back and forth, best books, whatever. But yeah, this is the best book that you've recommended to date that I've it's just I've enjoyed it so much and I really think that this is um I go back and forth on whether or not this should have been the first king piece that we read because it's so good but thinking back to other king pieces that we read I'm like yeah I think I'd be let down even more than I was in the other king pieces now most of those were short stories so I think that having this be a really pleasant surprise and, and not to say I don't want to misconstrued this I wasn't unhappy that we were going to read it. It's a piece of modern literature that I've always seen. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I should get around to reading that at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'd read a few King stories and they're short stories. So they're not my favorite thing in the world. And I've said that in different episodes where it's like, they're not bad, but they're just not as engrossing and engaging. But this, this is different. And I've got a few thoughts later on King's writing style compared to other authors that I want to talk about. But this section in particular was long. It was really long. And even though I audiobook, it was super long. Like, 
almost didn't get it finished in time long because of how life how busy my life is at the moment but i really really loved the background information and the carousel of point of views mm. that we get because each yeah. chapter is from a different person's perspective and then that one chapter where it's the news articles uh which we'll talk about in a bit i think i'd have an issue reading the book with the way that he ebbs and flows in and out of these point of views and sort of like timelines versus listening where listening to me is like an like an audio movie or a movie and i find that easier to follow where it's like oh hey it's this and then oh suddenly we're in a different time zone uh or time timeline as kids and then it's like oh yeah they're like at the ravine and they're doing this and they're doing that they're riding their bikes and they're being chased by this thing um I will say there's one thing that stuck out to me that it felt like each chapter was a little copy paste because it's like, oh, hey, they have their unique section of their history and their upbringing and their whatever. And then they get chased by the thing. They get chased by it or they fight it. And I mean, it's a it's a small nit. Like it wasn't bad, but it was like after the third time, it's like, okay this is going to happen every time. And it's like, yeah, well, what do you expect? This is what the book is about. But that is the only part that felt a little stale to me where it's like, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Cause it's like, I don't know how else you would do it, which is why this is a small knit. It's like, this is the book. Like, this is what the book is about. So like, what do you, I mean, what are you, what are you looking at? And this is like me talking to me, you know what I mean? Right. Right. It's interesting. You bring that up. I never thought about it, but illustration if you will with the figure eight and how things mm -hmm. repeat you mm -hmm. know that that's even more applicable because yeah there is a repetition of the way a character is introduced there it's a it's just, it's thematic and it's on repeat but there's enough of a difference at least in my mind's eye there's enough of a difference where it was the stale to me i think for you mm -hmm. you were paying attention more to this part of the story and that's why it stood out to you to me ben is on a plane bill is on a plane we have eddie kasprak on a train and then driving from boston we have richie who flies and drives we have bev who flies and drives so there are similarities mm -hmm. and it is a bit of a copy and paste but it they're all coming from different parts how else are you going to get to dairy if you're not going to drive or ride a train or get on the plane and they're all coming at the same time because when mike yeah. calls them it's not like they take days together they drop what they're doing kick the shit out of their abusive husband you know for, for beverly's that situation. was a that was a heavy chapter to read honestly. that was a heavy chapter yeah yeah and they go except for stan i i think it's a very astute observation on your part but i also don't see how else you can get away with it unless you just change up the mode of transportation which you could to me it was mostly the chasing okay and then it chased them okay then it chased them okay then it chased them the travel didn't bother me that's fine okay it was the it chasing them part that it was like okay this is copy and paste is what that felt like they're in this side of town so it appears to them in this way oh they're doing this thing it appears to them in this way and it's just like the chase scene in particular i think is what bothered me okay 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 that makes more sense not the travel there I don't know if you could escape that either. Right, right, because it's the book. Like, that's, I don't... Yeah, it's the book, but more than that, 
internally, dairy itself is sick. Mm-hmm. Dairy is controlled by it. So it is everywhere, and it appears to them at different times. There's even a, I think it's in this section, when a kid was being killed, it said Ben was watching TV, Bill was looking at his brother's photo album and throwing it across the room because it appeared to him at the same time as it was killing this kid. All the stories that are happening, again, that figure eight, they're all intertwined, and it is a cancer upon dairy. So I understand what you're saying and why it stood out to you, but I don't know what else, how else to retell that. How would we fix that? Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that, which is why it's like this is kind of just a really small knit. Right, right. So these memories that they all have as they're traveling, what two things stood out to you as story anchors? We talked about this. So I'm, I'm prompting you to uh, go with the, <laughs> what you said because I thought I thought what you mentioned was great, mm-hmm. and then it prompted me to say there was also a second thing, and that all the memories share these two things. Yeah. So so Slav and I do this thing before the podcast where we'll have brief conversations about my thoughts. I'm a verbal processor, which if you've listened to probably more than three episodes, you've picked up on to process my thoughts. I sometimes need to talk it out. So things that stood out to me in each of these chapters was Stephen King anchors the story on this both past and present and future moment of the pact at the dam. So, So the blood pact that all of these characters made and then the fact that they were all at the dam that day. Um, but he, he also well, throws a little a bit of a... The blood pact was made after they fought it. The dam was a separate event. Right. I yeah, was yeah. about to clarify that. Okay. So, Which is fine. Because the blood pact happens afterward. But he, he anchors first that they all met at the dam. But the thing is, when these chat when this section of chapters starts, they're not friends yet. not Not really. And so we get to see how they became friends, both from the bully chasing them and then the dam being ruined and then, uh, you know, trying to save, um, what's his name? What's his name with the, uh, the asthma? Eddie. Yeah. And so it's interesting how he's like, Hey, there's this moment and you're following the character and you're both seeing their present day of their adult life and the things they still struggle with. I'm having trouble with the character's names this morning. Who's the one who married his mother? Eddie. Eddie. Man, that was gross. Freud would love it. I had a dream about, you want to sleep with your mother? Every time. No, Eddie gets worse. We get a deeper glimpse into his mother's insanity in part three, and you just feel so bad for this kid. I can already feel it. I Just just from, like, watching his wife, and, and like, her breakdown felt a little... Cartoonish? Forced. Yeah, yeah. It was like, he's leaving on a trip. Like, what is wrong with you? That that felt inauthentic. Okay. That's interesting. So the the guy from the Stephen King cast of yeah. an episode ago, yeah. Fame, he mentioned that. And his word for it was comical. It's cartoonish. And him being a super fan, he said, I think that King did it on purpose because Eddie's life is a cartoon. He marries mm-hmm. somebody as big as his mom. He marries somebody who's mentally unstable as his mom. Yeah. His character introduction is to the POV of all the medicine. And, right, right. And even in chapter three, where he has a moment of clarity, like maybe all this is in my head. I'm not spoiling too much for you, but I think 
but I, I'll hold back because I want you to experience that mom moment for all its for all its glory. Yeah. Um. So he has a moment of clarity, but then fast forward to an adult, he's still there. I felt like she definitely was overreacting. I'm like, holy cow, lady! Like, you know, each time I read, it, it's the same reaction. I'm like, wow, Myra, you need to really calm down. But I feel for Eddie. Like he can't escape the cycle. Yeah. And so for that part of it, this can't escape the cycle details aside for a moment that I thought were inauthentic. Can't escape the cycle is something we've talked about on the podcast. When we go into our colloquial, you know, slice of life, here's a piece of my history ordeals Mm -hmm. that we share and both in our lives and in, in the lives of people around us. But it's, it's like most people are not willing to make themselves uncomfortable enough for three to six months to truly just change their lives for the better. Yep. And it, it's not easy. Don't mishear me. You know, if you clip this quote, make sure that you get the second part where it's like, I'm not saying it's easy. Being uncomfortable is being uncomfortable. And what you have to sort through, whether it's Eddie's trauma or, you know, stuff that you went through as a kid or things that I had come up last week about like, oh, this is how I was communicated what love is as a kid. And then being like, oh, shoot, I got to I got to deal with this. And if you don't deal with it, then you are, you know, going to continue to run in these cycles. So I won't I won't, um, as you say, belabor the point, but uh, <laughs> I won't belabor the point, but. I would encourage everyone to reflect on, especially in this new year, what cycles are you running in that do not serve you? And what kind of life do you want to have? And then start building a bridge to to get there because you really can't have the life that you want if you will take three to six months to start breaking your current cycles and, and, and environments and then commit to doing three to five years of work. You can literally have whatever life you want. Anyway. Yeah. Well, one thing to add to that, and it starts as easy as making your bed. And I know all the hustle bros and all the king influencers on Instagram that, you know, copy and paste either Goggins or somebody else. And they all have the same rah, rah, rah. Love Goggins. Rah, rah, rah nonsense. I know it all sounds watered down and cliche, but it really does start with making your bed. It helps with setting habits in motion. It doesn't, but uh, I, I digress. And I'm belaboring it. So it's a it's a new year. Better start it off with a little bit of belaborment. Right. Right. It's um it is what it is. So yes, those story anchors are, I think, amazingly woven into the the the, the them dam and back. the blood pact. The dam and the blood pact, because you have them coming back. And so let's let's just pick two or three of them. Ben, he's in a plane. He's just drank half a bottle of wild turkey. He remembers Bev because he's in love with Bev. Mm-hmm. And then he remembers fighting with Bowers, which is amazing. I think that both Ben and Bev have this moment when Bev has it as an adult, but Ben has it as a kid twice when he decides to shed the pounds. And you'll learn about that in part three. And then when he fights Henry Bowers, which is amazing. He beats the crap out of this bully, which I kind of do when I was a kid to my bully. It was less dramatic. But balls were kicked, too. So, look, hey, the guy was six times bigger than me. There's nothing fair. Yeah, there's nothing fair in fighting. You don't have to. No. It's not an honorable duel. That's a different thing. Yeah. And even then, if if I'm in a duel, 
one of us is dying. I'm not going to be a gentleman about it. Sorry. So we have Ben. He remembers fighting Bowers and then helping the losers build a dam. We have Eddie Kasprak, who has the same memory. He's like, he remembers the day that Bill got the idea to build the dam and how Ben showed them. And then, you know, he thinks about how the leper uh, almost killed him. We have Beverly, who remembers the same thing. She looks at the scar on her palm, and she's remembering her friends. And she's remembering the promise that they made uh, to come back to Jared if they need to. And then you have, then you have Bill, who actually remembers uh, his bike, right? So they're all, mm-hmm. that's where it's a little Hi-ho bit different. Hi ho, silver away. That's where it's a little bit d- different because Bill doesn't remember the dam. Bill remembers it because of him and Richie looking at the album. Oh, well, he was looking at it by himself first, but Bill remembers the bike. Richie, what does Richie remember? Uh, do you, do you know? Do you remember what Richie remembers? I don't think I wrote it down. But he's flooded with memories. Oh, there it is. Here's my notes. It's all coming back to him in waves. And it is the dam. Mm-hmm. And it is the dam. And he remembers Mr. Nell, who was a cop, going, hey, guys, build a dam. And you're backing up water into uh, <laughs> into people's toilets. Yeah. Please stop doing what you're doing. Uh, and then he remembers Ben taking responsibility for the dam. And then everybody else goes, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. And they all fess up to protect Ben. And that's where that bond, I think, is formed. That first anchor is formed. Mm-hmm. And even though, and you'll see what happens in part three with Eddie, it tries to dislocate. Not dislocate. That's not a right word. It's a good word, but not the right word. It tries to disrupt the Losers Club. But they persevere, and after they beat it or wound it, you'll find out what happens later, Jonathan. <laughs> they make that pact. So now after after making the dam, their friendship is solidified. They get together to fight it, and then afterwards, they make the pact. So I think it's a, just a nice anch- – I like your word, anchor. It's two great mm-hmm. anchors for the story. Yeah, very much so. So one of the things that's not at all a copy and paste – uh, or maybe it is, uh, is chapter six, um, where King writes fake news articles, news clippings about the story. Mm-hmm. And it's about Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran and his little brother, who gets murdered with a hammer. Do you like the news clippings in a story? Do you think it helps with the immersion? Because this isn't, you know, this is not an interlude. So this is not Mike, like, talking about something and introducing a book or a news article. This is just chapter six. And here we just have a dump of news stories about Eddie and his little brother. And then later we get to witness Eddie Cochran's death, which uh, is told through a regular, you know, narrative style. Did that help you get immersed in the book? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I did like that chapter because it felt unique. What I will say is I didn't really notice the chapters. Or uh, sorry, not the chapters. I didn't really notice the clippings. It felt like more information to me because this is all new to me. Like I've never read this book. I've never watched any of the movies. I just knew like, hey, this is a kind of a cult classic. That's it. And you know, I I know that it's about a clown and this kid in a yellow yellow rain jacket who you know perceivably befriends the clown. That's all that I knew. So taking all of this information in and 
understanding it and also trying to integrate it and find the patterns and the matches at the same time is why this didn't stand out to me. It's like, oh, this is more information. I need to figure out what's going on as opposed to, oh, this is really unique and whatever. So I think I missed out on the storytelling device of newspaper clippings because I was busy trying to capture the information. Because even before we started recording this episode, you were like, oh, hey, what'd you think about that chapter? And I was like, I mean, it's fine. And then you start talking about it and you're like, but didn't you notice the newspaper clippings? And I was like, yes, question mark, because it's just all new information to me. So, yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes I can get a little heady because I don't know what else to call it, where I'm not noticing the intricacies of the author's writings. And I don't think I'm immersed. I think I'm trying to mentally catch up or mentally put things together. I realize it's not like a super clear answer. I don't think it takes away from the story. I'll say that. But I'm not sure I would have noticed if it wasn't there. Except after you ask the question. And then it's like, okay, I mentally removed it. But I'm now thinking like, okay, if that wasn't there, then my comment about copy and paste feels even more relevant because you know this whole section is chapters four through nine so if it was just four five seven eight nine and you just have each of these characters in their povs like you it would be noticeable that it wasn't there you know thinking through the logic of this question because you would just be getting the POVs and it would feel even more copy and paste-ish where it's like the pacing, even though it it had spikes, would feel very plateaued where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, like, think about it. If you remove that chapter yep, and you just have character POV chased by it, character POV chased by it, character POV chased by it, and it's just like, okay, but by having this in the center... I think that you do really get to break it up, even though it didn't consciously stick out to me. I think it was it was necessary and was actually helpful. Two things. You're listening to the audiobook, so it might not be obvious. These are news clippings, mm-hmm. unless you're listening very carefully. And if you're doing your heady thing, you're not listening carefully enough to the this little um, nuance that's going on, right? Mm-hmm. which isn't that a bad or a good thing. And then two, this is your first time reading the book. Right. So this was your third time. You know that the news clippings are coming, right? Or if you're reading right. the physical book, the way the physical book or even the Kindle book is formatted, you can see that it's headline, date, newspaper, blurb. And you can tell that this is, you know, inserted here as a pseudo interlude, but it's actually a chapter. Mm-hmm. And, Mike's just sharing. It's no longer the narrator. Now it's Mike just sharing the news clippings of the audience. Yeah. The readers. And it's said somewhere, I think it's said somewhere that the narrator is using portions of Mike's unpublished history of dairy to further the plot, to further the story, to tell a fuller story. I think that might be the case too. So that's why... This is not in an interlude. It's just kind of thrown in the middle of a of a mm-hmm. part of a section. 
Which makes it even more interesting, I think, if that's true. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Let's get to the interlude, now that we've mentioned it. <laughs> this is a kind of a heavy one. You get to uh, listen to Mike's father recount the Black Spot fire. <sighs> yeah. Which was ignited by fathers of some of the kids uh, that yeah. attend Derry with Mike. Like, some of the kids that Mike plays with, or at least has a okay relationship with whether or not bullying him or you know shouting racial epithets at him they're just kids that are around uh mike and even one of them goes oh yeah my my dad uses the n-word all the time it's all great he's a christian your dad's a christian the way when he uses the n-word it's always in a praiseworthy manner Mm -hmm. Uh, and that just shows like the naivety of kids and the innocence of kids too but it paints a picture of dairy being truly diseased and this is just a a ploy of of the author obviously he's using racist pieces of garbage to show that how infested the the town is by focusing on something that was around in the 1930s around in the 1950s and 60s and it happened in the north if you read the black experience uh any good history in the black experience if you read it you will know that the north had its own problems sometimes that outsurpassed the south yeah, the chapter with with Beverly and then this interlude have been the two most difficult parts to go through for me at the moment. Other bad things happened, death happens, but I think it's just more sobering. Because I was thinking about it, like in this chapter there's a lot of N-word use, and I was like, I don't remember the last time I read a book that had the N-word in it, outside of like some very specific pieces that we read in like 10th grade or i think that the n-word is in to kill a mockingbird does that oh, sound yeah. right yeah yeah numerous yeah. times like yeah okay all right so like things like that that was freshman year too so like high school right like now i've heard it you know by black folks in you know eight mile or rap songs or whatever but it's different it's it's definitely different when you're reading it in a book and it's like oh this is clearly like meant to be about racism and it's like well shoot man like that's um yeah just those two sections were super heavy to to go through i don't want to waver too far from this interlude in part two but why do you think bev's story stood out to you as the most difficult than the other besides it being her being clearly in an abusive relationship and clearly in one that's more dangerous than the others what what do you think what else stood out to it uh well so i've had friends who were in abusive relationships mm. and you know because you have a personal connection with a person and then you have an example of what could have been you know details are probably not one to one you know 99.9% of the time and so it's like thinking through that and going oh man like and then also finding out people that you knew who were abusive but it was behind closed doors and you're just like holy cow you know that's pretty crazy and then my mom's side, they had a few different dads throughout the years. And that was back in the 40s and 50s where this was normal to, like, beat your kids and things like that. It's a, it's a different perspective on or an elaboration to people that I have known and know. And so it's just, like, thinking through that and applying it to those people in particular and going, oh, man, that's something, you know. So I don't think it was more or less than the interlude here with the racism. I think that they both just stood out to me 
equally, but for different reasons. Right? That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think Stephen King, and I, I can't get into his head or his heart, but he has, in numerous books, touched upon racism. Mm-hmm. And he has painted racists with very vivid colors. He has made them repulsive characters in uh, a lot of his books. And another shout out to uh, to our guy from the, the podcast, Stephen Kingcast. He brought this up. I didn't think about it until I listened to that episode. And yeah, in the books that I read, Stephen King, when he writes a racist character, he paints them with vivid colors, meaning that they stand out as bad and evil and their racism is so stark. And I think for this book, specifically this story of the Black Spot Fire, it's meant to show the power of it. Mm. Pennywise. Is because they do unspeakable things. They're racists, like the the white legion of white decency. And that's not a far fetched name. That that's what these these pieces of shit call themselves, mm-hmm. or close to. But just what they do, how they do it, and how they scatter like rats from a sinking ship, you know, like little cowards after they see what they've done. What stood out to me above anything else with the Black Spot Fire is how the deaths of the victims are described. How vivid the picture of the fire is in your mind's eye. Yeah. And like yeah. the women walking around in a daze, like melting and like her dress melting off of her and people screaming and how Dick Halloran, who mm-hmm. side quest, side note, is a character from a different book, is actually the head chef at Overlook Hotel. So Dick Halloran, who saves Mike's father and the other dude, he's actually from the SK universe, the Stephen King universe. All that's happening. And there was a large bird. So it yeah, I took showed, that. Itself, yeah. showed itself Hovering. to Mike. Yeah, Mike and Mike's dad both saw the large bird. And that's how it has revealed himself itself to them. Mm-hmm. But it feeds on one of the races that it influenced. That's kind of the, the, the background of the story. It influenced these people to attack the black spot. It influenced their racism. It fed their racism. And then when they did it, they committed the crime. It ate one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting kind of overlooked detail where King could have wrote that the Legion of White Decency started the fire and then a bird ate some of Mike fa- Mike's father's friends. Right, right. Right? But it, he didn't. It, it fed on the ones it influenced to commit the crime. So I think King is saying something with that. It does not discriminate. It just feeds on this town. Right. So. Yeah. It was uh, certainly a visceral chapter. Because we're speaking about the interludes at the moment, something I wanted to mention is, and this is like a difficult segue because this is like a clearly racist chapter, but um, some of the similarities that I've seen between Stephen King as a writer and specifically Brandon Sanderson is having interludes and using them as additional narrative style to add to the world, to add to side characters, to add to, mm-hmm. I don't want to call it a side quest, but to add extra information to the world. 
and giving us as the audience more information to kind of well round what's going on and the believability and the immersion into the world. And so some of the stuff that I noticed as I've been going through this for the first time is there's interludes, the interludes help add to the immersion. There's a lot going on between the two writers, the multiple, the carousel, I believe I called it the carousel of points of view between, you know, main characters, side characters, watching side characters through main characters or vice versa, having in-depth character backgrounds and giving us snippets of, oh, hey, this is why this person acts this way because of whatever happened in their past. Or, oh, hey, they, they really like this thing because when they were a kid, da, 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 whatever. And then even with the interludes where it's like, okay, there are side characters that seem out of place that don't feel like they have a purpose necessarily. More so in Sanderson than, than King because I think King is more of a, hey, I've cut up your steak for you. Here you go. And it's more clear cut versus Sanderson, who's like, hey, there's a bunch of side characters and they don't make sense until you start piecing together this larger picture. This, to me, is evidence of both writers being. I I think I could say this with confidence, but both writers are masters of their craft because they understand how to use narrative style and structure and pacing and character development in a recipe that they serve you on a platter going, hey, here's what I've given you. And Stephen King is, to me, more meat and potatoes, like, here you go. There's less questions about what's going on. It's still a mystery book, but, like, there's less questions, whereas Sanderson is more like a gastropub where it's like, hey, I've infused mint into the mayonnaise, and I've used it to spread it on this organic sourdough bread that, you know, pulls the flavors together, and you're like, I don't think that's going to work. And then you go, oh, wow, this is really good. Now... I'm sure that you're wincing at my very crass culinary palate, but uh, you'll just have to bear with it. Yeah. No, that's all good. And I I think you're right. When you mentioned this before we hit the record button, I was like, yeah, the two Sanderson books that I read, at least one of them had all of the things you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And it did add to the background and it added depth to the characters and it did give you extra POVs and the side characters. I'm just going to read you a quote side characters that seem out of place, but fit in the bigger picture. You know, like Victor Chris and Henry Bowers and the other guy, third bully things will be more clear. Why we get Mm -hmm. all the bullies discussed. Things will become clear in the fourth part. There's going to be another, another death scene that's going to be very visceral for you. So mm-hmm. get get ready. <laughs> but I mean, I expect more people to die before the book's yeah. over. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. They, they do. Especially with the foreshadowing of each character's POV that we have where it's like, and they don't think they're going to return home, you know, not exactly word for word, but pretty much yeah. that in every chapter. So it's yeah. like, yeah, some of them are going to die yes. at some point. Naturally. One thing that stood out to me and I, and I missed it, uh, up top, so I brought it down to our next section here, is in her childhood, Beverly hears a voice in the bathroom mm-hmm. asking for help. And the voice says, we all want to meet you, Beverly. And the adults, like the the blood that spritz out of the, the drain there, the adults don't see it at all, but the kids see it. 
And that kind of goes back to a line I said in the first episode, which I'd like to revisit each episode we do it, is the, the child laws and adult laws and how they work. Because these same laws also work with Richie and Bill when they're fighting the werewolf at the house on Niebold Street. I forgot what Richie says. I think he uses one of his voices and it kind of kicks the werewolf back. So that's yeah. definitely a child law, like a law of my imagination. Like we do something in our little child minds and that pushes the monster away. Now that you pointed out, I can see it, but I don't have a clear enough picture unless you can guide me through to tell me each of the times that happens. I mean, I get it. And I think that that is something that takes place both in this story and real life of like, children have justifications for things and it just makes sense to them and how they see the world and how they interact with the world. But I don't have a whole lot to add unless you can, you can guide me through the river of souls here. Well, I just gave you two episodes where that happens where the losers clean up Beverly's bathroom. Yeah. And they see the blood being uh, cleaned up and they see it as a show of force against it. Richie, when he does his voices, it becomes clear to him that there is a way to defeat it. There are things that it is afraid of. And despite adults not being able to see it or sometimes even know that they're being controlled by it, the kids know, the kids Mm -hmm. see, and it's the kids to take action. But the thing that propels them or gives them success or gives them good luck, whatever the hell you want to call it, is these things which are like, the laws of childhood it's imagination it's going to the library and reading books on how to kill monsters Mm -hmm. you know in the third part i think it's in the third part that ben comes back with and says hey we can do this and then the kids in part three again i'm going to give you one spoiler they they perform a ritual called the ritual of chewed which is pretty much a smoke hall pretty much a smoke hole and they try to you know ascend you know reality or whatever and they get that from reading a book but that's such a child thing to do an adult wouldn't be let's say in the exorcist yeah what do the adults do in the exorcist they go to a priest they go to a psychologist if if stephen king wrote the exorcist and it was the uh reagan's little brother trying to save her what would it look like what it might look like a kid going to the library and reading a book that he describes as killing monsters, but it's actually a book on Native American, you know, rituals. That's childhood laws and adulthood laws is what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, and I and I took note of those things while I was reading, but I wouldn't, I didn't categorize them as childhood laws necessarily. I just know that at the end of this book, because this is how stories work, is that some of them will succeed. Like, I don't, I, I, this book doesn't have the air about it to go, this is a, a, a torture book where they die at the end, <laughs> like all of them, like, and then that, and then it you just you continues to reign, to reign supreme. Like, that's just not the type of book that this seems like. And it's also not the type of book that gets the level of cultural praise that this one has. So like, logically speaking, that's how I look at this book. Again, I haven't looked anything up. But when you go, you know, adult adult laws versus kids laws, it's like, yeah, I mean, I noticed those things. I just didn't categorize them that way of like at some point they have to defeat it. That's the premise of the book is these things happened. 
Georgie died at the beginning and they have to defeat it. And, and like, how will they defeat it? Well, in these first few chapters, we saw them or not first few, but like in the second part here, we saw, oh, hey, it was the voice. Oh, hey, it was the, the bathroom. Oh, hey, at the end, they're like, well, we need to tell Bill. Bill will know what to do. Right. And it's like, so, yeah, I mean, I I know that they're building up toward like, how do we defeat this? And they're starting to realize like, there is a way we just don't know what it is yet and so sure the next part's going to be an exploration in how to defeat the thing they will probably fail because it's only part three and there's five parts like but again i didn't categorize this as um child laws versus adult laws i think it's a nice way to categorize it it's just not the way that i saw it the reason i applied those categories is because there is this theme running through the book about childhood and adulthood and the difference between the two. And you'll get more of that in chapter uh, in part three mm-hmm. and how memory works. Like all these adults are thrust back into dairy and then the memories start coming back. Yeah. And the laws like this pact, the childhood pact and how important it is to them. And then the adults are like, you made a pact when you're in 10, like great, but we don't need to belabor this. Let's talk about, Bowers, Henry Bowers. Did you ever have a bad bully in school? Like somebody, irrespective of whether he tortured you. Yeah, was yeah. Was there a yeah. Ben Bowers in your? Uh, not Ben Bowers. My <laughs> goodness. Was there, yeah. was, was there a Henry Bowers in your school? Well, they're they're you know you, you oftentimes kids go to different schools. They don't usually stay at the same one forever. And I distinctly remember, um, in second grade there was a bully who. I mean, if I don't remember all the details, but this kid's probably comes from trailer trash. Like he convinced me to give him my toys from show and tell because he had some too and he wanted to play with them. And then he just took them home and the teacher couldn't prove it. And his mom didn't do anything about it. And so like, that was a really difficult day for me as a second grader who like had just gotten these new toys. He picked on kids. His name was Steven. And... I don't remember what his last name was, but I would out him. No problem. Um, (laughs) But it was just like, yeah, that was that. like he was mean. And he wasn't just mean to me. He was mean to other kids, too. He just took what he needed, which and, you know, after growing up and learning psychology, it's like, oh, kids don't just do this for no reason. Like this comes from somewhere. Right. And then certainly in high school, you know, definitely in middle school. But he's the one that sticks out when you say, you know, did you have a. Did you have a bully in particular? And it's like, well, that moment definitely stood out because it's like this kid stole my shit. Yeah, for me, the one that stands out, I think his name is Chris. He was the one that was physical. Like he, when he would bully kids, it would be physical. Mm-hmm. And he would, you know, kick you or push you into lockers or try to trip you. Or if he sat behind you, he would just constantly try to push your chair or kick the back of your chair. Yeah. He's just, just a just a. F- well, if it was... So- if you if your question was about physical bullies, not we had a necessarily. Neighbor- well, okay, all right. Well, we had a neighborhood couple of them, Brent and Brandon, and they uh, they were just a little bit bigger than the other kids, and they just picked on all the neighborhood kids, and they were purposefully rough, but not rough enough to get caught, right? Because you know they know that they'll get in trouble, but it was just like obnoxious, and no one wanted to play with them, and. Just, yeah, those were the kids who were physical, but that was like neighborhood stuff instead of school-specific stuff. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. But speaking of speaking of nostalgia, did you have uh, any school crushes? Because I know part of this is, you know, Beverly goes on her first date. She thinks about it fondly. And uh, I think it was Ben really loved her, right? But then Beverly also thinks that she had, like, a moment with Bill. But uh, at least up until this point, I don't see Bill responding in kind. He's too busy being responsible uh, for everyone's lives. Beverly has a little crush on Bill, and Ben is head over heels oh, yeah. in love with uh, Beverly. There's an interesting line I want to read, if you bear with me, about, about Ben's love for Beverly. Mm-hmm. All right, so he's comparing in his mind, he's comparing the girls in class. And even though Beverly comes from the poor and bad part of town, here's what Ben thinks. He thought Beverly was nicer and much prettier, although he never in a million years would have dared to say such a thing to her. But still, sometimes in the heart of winter when the lights outside seemed yellow sleepy, like a cat curled up on a sofa, when Mrs. Douglas was droning on about mathematics and how to carry down long division or how to find out the common denominator of two fractions, so you could add them, or reading the questions from Shining Bridges or talking about tin deposits in Paraguay. On those days, when it seemed that school would never end and it didn't matter if it didn't, because all the world outside was slush, on those days, Ben would look sideways at Beverly, stealing her face, and his heart would both hurt and desperately and somehow grow brighter at the same time. This kid is... Is is just uh, in love, and yeah. uh, th- there's this funny thing on EA because he's a lonely fat boy. He thought that fat boys were probably only allowed to love pretty girls inside. If he told anyone how he felt, now that he'd anybody to tell, that person would probably laugh until he had a heart attack. And if he ever told Beverly, she would either laugh herself bad or make retching noises of disgust worse. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. kid is uh, helplessly in love. But anyway, your question. Yeah, I remember a few crushes. The first kind of crush. You know what? Forget the first crush. Cause let's talk about this this age. I had a crush in seventh grade on a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just looked older than the other girls because she developed very early. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she was held back a year or two or something. I don't know. But she was also from the bad part of town. And she was a poor. Oh, Slava's into the bad girls. But I remember her being so freaking pretty. And I was skinny and scrawny. Mm-hmm. But I was like Ben. I was a bit of a loner. Library was my home base. I liked reading books. And this girl was never mean to me. I mean, we never became friends like Ben and Beverly did. Mm-hmm. But she was always just, I remember her at least, always being sweet, always being kind to everybody. And she was just beautiful to me when I was in like what this was sixth, seventh grade. She was just, she was my Beverly, mm, pretty mm-hmm. much. Nice. What about yourself? Any, any uh, forlorn, unrequited love in a? It's like my whole story, all wrapped well, up into school. a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Like uh, speaking of seventh grade might have been eighth grade but uh there was a new girl who came to the school and she was tall and attractive and mm. uh i took I the risk pattern. i took the risk yeah okay all right all right all right i see what you did there uh 
I took the risk and I did the thing that you see on Boy Meets World where you write, you know, I, you know, I like you. Do you like me? Check box. Yes or no. And slipped it into her locker. She made wretched noises. Right. Like, uh, and then the girl that was befriending her took it, crumbled it up and threw it back in my locker while I was standing there. It was pretty, pretty demoralizing, but she ended up dating one of the, you know, football stars or whatever. And it's just like, okay, you know, classic. Yeah. Classic story in uh, middle America. Yep. Yeah, that's for sure. What do you think, because I've said this before, but what do you think about King's ability to write kids now that you read two parts of this book? I'm enthralled. So a lot of my previous reading for fiction has been fantasy or sci-fi and here and there some young adult stuff, which is fine. Young adult things are, are, are fine. But uh, I really can't remember the last time I read something that was kid focused that wasn't actually a children's book, and so and I and 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 as a uh, as an additional aside, really loved Stranger Things, and so mm. I'm seeing some some strong parallels here of the nostalgia that's felt in Stranger Things, where the kids band together and they're going on adventures and they're trying to sort out whatever the problem is for the day well living their day-to-day lives of going to school and whatever and also solving some sort of bigger problem that they can see but the adults can't see yet to it here where the kids can see stuff that the adults can't see but the way that king writes children is masterful i really don't know another word to say for this because it really sparks and does what it's called to do of Hey, remember when you were a kid? Hey, remember when you dealt with a bully? And and we've talked about some of these things. And it's, hey, remember when you had a crush? Hey, remember when you felt like an idiot and didn't want to do whatever? Hey, remember that time you first broke the the vault inside yourself and shared something that's deeply personal? And you were like, if you guys laugh, I'm never going to talk to you again. Like, yep. build it. Yeah. And so it's just like, all that stuff happens when you're a kid. All of it. And... You know, your details are going to look different than the way it's written in this book. But the principle, the the baseline of like, did you have a bully? Yes or no? It's like, well, yeah, there's always a kid who's a bully. Did you have moments where you had a crush on someone? Well, yeah. You know, did you have moments where you felt stupid for doing something or didn't feel athletic enough or, you know, parents wouldn't listen to you? Like, it's all there. It's all there. And so I I just think King has masterfully put together these characters and and that's that's part of the reason why i've told you earlier it's like this is the best book you've recommended to to date good very nice i love it so as we're landing this plane hot air balloon sewer sewer trolley balloon balloon seems on theme like as we're coming to an end we find that mike's suspicions that it has returned are verified by the end of the second interlude, that story about the black fire is like the most significant part. But what's verified for Mike and the reader is yes, it has returned. And that's important because Mike doesn't want to call them back for nothing. Because if he calls them back, he knows that some of them might not return. Mm -hmm. And he wants to make sure that it has returned so he can call them back for the pact. Right. And it visits Mike in the library because he writes down his father's story 
mm-hmm. as he's staying in the library after work. He's the librarian of the town. It visits him. And now Mike is going to call the losers back. And it seems that it knows this is happening. So it is preparing. Pennywise is preparing for the this next battle. Mm-hmm. And I think next episode is going to be fun to talk about because putting all these little pieces together, we get to meet the adults in a more fuller fashion and we get yeah. to see their friendships rekindled and more memories come back to them. Yeah. So again, as we're winding down here, I want to ask you, have you ever made a pact before Slava in your life with one or many people? Not that I can remember. Loser. You're a loser. I am a loser who doesn't have a pact. Apparently. So, yeah. I can't remember one. If if a guy calls me and says you have to come back to whatever town I lived in in Massachusetts, I'd be, who? (laughs) New phone, who dis? (laughs) Right. right. What about you? What what, what kind of pacts have you? I know you made a couple of pacts. You seem like a guy that makes pacts. Not often, but uh, I have made a few. One... The first pact that I can remember I made with Christopher, who was on for our guest episode of Dune with Spencer and you and I. And Christopher and I made a no dying pact where neither one of us is allowed to die before we finish writing our book, which when we tell people, they just start laughing. They go, that's cute. And I go, we're serious. Like, this is a real pact that we've made. Um, Blood wasn't spilt over it because I'm not looking to commit demonic atrocities, but we did make a verbal pact. And because the spiritual realm exists, I do, I do believe that it holds some weight. Um, now, you know, would that prevent us from dying? If one of us throws ourselves into the middle of the street, eh, well, I don't think, I don't think so, but we did make a pact on, you know, we need to finish this book before one of us passes through the veil. Right. And, uh, the second pact that I made was, uh, with my now fiance, where we said, uh, you know, if by the time we're forty, we haven't met anybody, we like spending time together. So why don't we, uh, why don't we do this thing, marriage? And uh, we bumped it back five years. Started dating last year. Got engaged month and a half ago, month ago, month ago. And uh, now that pact is working on its way to be fulfilled. So uh, now Christopher and I just need to finish our book, which means we need to go back and actually pull it up and and uh and dissect it and pull it apart yeah if that uh that gets any traction i'll be sure to let you guys know awesome 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 i love it and i will remain packless packedless <laughs> packed and packless i guess you're just a regular packed, packed animal yeah or i guess i'd be the so. packed animal because i'm carrying the packs you yes i'm the packed animal you're the rider i don't like this anymore never mind anyway (laughs) next time part 3 grown ups and chapters 10 through 12 and the third interlude yes sir looking forward to it well we want to thank you guys for joining us today on SciQuest as we discussed part 2 Summer of 1958, July of 58. What do we discuss? We discussed the second part of Stephen King's It, and we are out of here. Yes, we are. 
be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the next literary jaunt only on SideQuest.